Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Creation of Israel, Part 2, recorded in September 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. That's when we come to the final uh, reversal, which is um, Joseph and Judah as the reversal of Noah and his sons, the the shattering of of familial unity. Now, uh, you probably have heard of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Technicolor Coat, right? We all know the story of Joseph and his brothers. We all know the story about how his brothers threatened to kill him because he's favored. Sounds a lot like Cain and Abel. Sounds a lot like Jacob and Esau. It's the same story. It's the same old, same old. Um, Only now it's a bit, the stakes are a bit higher. We all know the story about how he survives. He, he goes to Egypt as a slave. He eventually rises to power and how he eventually confronts his brothers, you know, without them knowing it because he looks like an Egyptian. And he toys with them a bit to, to test them to find out what their, whether their attitudes have changed or not, whether they really deserve, uh, his love or not. Um, now there's ambiguities in this story. And of course, at the end, they all reconcile. They all unite. Um, at the end of the story, throughout the story, though, there's ambiguity. At times, it seems that Joseph is the protagonist, that he truly is the one who saves the family. He's the one who's trying to get them all in one place. He's the one who's trying to, uh, to get them to sort of own up to their past uh, sins so that they can have a genuine reconciliation. There is, an in, there is indeed this, this, this line of thought in the story at one point, um, after their father dies, they say, oh, is Joseph going to kill us now? He says, no, uh, I'm not God. I don't have that God complex. I fear God. I won't kill you. I won't take revenge. Um, so he says, and by the way, don't think of you as being the problem. God was the one who brought me here so that I might save the family. So there's that dominant plot line. But there's another plot line that is in tension with it. And that is that Joseph is actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. There are many places in the story where Joseph seems not to be trying to reunite the family, but to divide it permanently. Now, I don't have a genealogical chart, but some of you may know that Jacob slash Israel had many wives, well, many mothers, right? He had two wives and two concubines, each of whom begets some of his 13 offspring, right? And um, Joseph is the son, the first son of the wife that... Jacob truly loves, right? Rachel. And he has only one full brother, Benjamin, who's the little kid of the family. In the story of Joseph and his brothers, it becomes very apparent at one point that what he's trying to do is actually separate the family so that he keeps his full brother, Benjamin, who never never did him any wrong, and tells the rest of his half-brothers to go to hell. Whatever, you know, they can deal, they can live, live on their own scraps out there in the in the wilderness, you know, he's going to get Benjamin for himself. That seems to be an implication. Now, why does that not happen? It doesn't happen because the ringleader of the brothers who got, got rid of Joseph originally, this is Judah, the ringleader actually ends up offering himself in place of the full brother that Joseph wants to keep. He says, make me your slave. Don't 
don't take him because if you take him, our father will die of grief. So he basically shames Joseph, causes him to break down these barriers about trying to control the situation. He shames him into revealing his identity and and reconciling, not knowing that he's Joseph at that point. So let's talk a bit about Judah. Who's Judah? Well, Judah is not literally the firstborn. He's like the fourthborn of Jacob. But by the time we get to the Joseph and his brother's story, he's actually the next in line for, for, for the person to lead the family because his three brothers ahead of him all did something bad. The firstborn uh, slept with his father's concubine, so he's disfavored. The second two ended up uh, murdering several people uh, and endangering the livelihood of the family as a result of that, so they're disfavored. Judah's next in line. He's the one positioned to rule the family. He could do well without Joseph, right? without any competitor. He could be like Cain if he wanted. In fact, that's what he does. He says, you know, let's, not, let's get rid of him, but let's not kill him. Let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. Very crass, you know, no sense of empathy with his brother. Um, so Judah begins as the villain, but he ends as the hero who saves the family by his self-sacrifice. Now, what happens to him in between? The, the amazing thing, as with the story of Jacob and as with the story of Joseph himself, is that um, God leads the hero, as it were, through these trials, through these uh, dangerous situations, or at least uh, threatening situations that are situations where they lose or are threatened to lose something that's precious to them. And through those experiences of loss and lack of control, they develop as characters. They learn how to live differently. Uh, Judah's transformation as a character is the most um, striking in the Bible. Uh, what happens is after you hear the story about how Joseph goes down to Egypt and does good for himself, you hear a story about Judah. And it says, meanwhile, back in the homeland, uh, Judah uh, married his son, his firstborn son off to a woman, and the son died because Yahweh didn't like him. And so he married her off to one of his brothers, and he died too. He had only one son left, and he was a bit young, so he said, well, don't marry him until he gets older. But really he was just saying, you know, Let's make sure she didn't marry him because my, my last son might die. So again, he's trying to control the family line and his own, his own offspring uh, through the cunning of the woman, Tamar. Uh, she manages to remain within the family right, by actually uh, dressing up as a prostitute and having sex with her father-in-law, uh, Judah. Uh, when it's found that she's pregnant, Judah, in a fit of righteous rage, says, burn her alive, she's an adulteress, and then she reveals that he is the father, and then he acknowledges she is more in the right than I am. He recognizes that he was trying to play God by not giving his last son to her, as was her right. And after this, he begins to change, perhaps. And so when we get to the end of the story, the reason for his willingness to give up his status has already been prepared by the early story. Um, now, it doesn't say that God was involved in the story, but God tends to be involved in all the events in the stories, whether he's visibly or not visibly doing that. So the upshot is Judah saves the family by giving up power, by giving up his God complex. And uh, thus the family is reunited. They overcome that last hurdle to being a family, to being a nation ultimately. And Israel is born. So let's review. 
What does this have to do with creation? Again, God is involved in all three of these things. He enables barren matriarchs to conceive. Uh, he rescues the favored sons from fratricide by protecting them in various ways. And he guides the favored son, whether it's uh, Jacob or Judah, through the ordeal that will ultimately empower him to overcome the God complex within himself. Those are the three ways that God creates Israel. Now we go to the Exodus. This is part two of our drama. This is actually the climax of the drama of Israel's creation. We all know the story. Israel is living in Egypt. A new pharaoh comes around, decides to uh, turn them into forced laborers, and God finds out about it and decides to do something about it. At this point, the creation language begins, starts coming hard and fast. Uh, we're told, first of all, in chapter four of Exodus, uh, when God meets Moses, or Moses meets God, rather, and God commissions Moses to be his point man on this operation. He says, you know, go tell the Pharaoh to, get to, to let them go, but I know the Pharaoh will not let them go. I know how people behave. They have a God complex. They don't want to lose control. So tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. God stakes a claim of paternity on Israel, which is... Not quite the language of creation yet, but again, God creates human beings. God certainly didn't uh, physically sire Israel, so it's using the metaphor of procreation to suggest that God is the reason Israel exists at all. Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go or I'll kill your firstborn son. So it's two kings, two fathers at war. That's the exodus. Uh, now, when we get into the, the labor dispute, the labor negotiations between the Pharaoh and Moses, which go on for 10 plagues, um, ultimately. Uh, the plagues are, represent the, the, the chaos Kampf tradition. They represent this idea of the deterioration of the created order into chaos gradually. The underpinnings that make the world livable are falling apart, just like they do in the old Psalms when God is fighting the monster. Egypt is the monster. Egypt or Pharaoh is the monster in here. There are different versions of the plagues. Uh, in the final edited version of the Bible that we have, there are ten plagues, because the editor liked the, the number ten for some reason. Uh, in some of the Psalms, there's a different sequence of plagues and a different number. In the earliest version of Exodus, there seems to have been seven plus one. And it's not seven because there are seven days of creation, uh, because this is a different author writing this. This is the Yahwist, the so-called Yahwist author. This is the author of the Garden of Eden story. And he, for whatever reason, decides to structure human history around sequences of seven generations. So human history is periodized according to sequences of seven generations. So you have Adam to Lamech, Noah to Terah, Abraham to Moses. Notice each sequence begins with a very important person and the last one ends with a very important person. Uh, the, the next set of generations begins with Israel, the covenant community. And that's where, this, where the story of the Pentateuch ends, actually. Um, but seven generations. And uh, at, at the end of each of these sets, you have um, sort of a, a different sort of resolution of these themes of conflict, lack of trust or trust between humans and God, fratricide, family disunity. Each of these sequences represents these processes of human history differently. My point is, though, when you have seven plagues, you're, you're mirroring that notion of a generational cycle, followed by an eighth. And what's the last plague? Does anyone remember? What's the last plague that God strikes the Egyptians with? Killing the firstborn. So notice, generational sequence ending with the death of the new generation. 
Now, that probably doesn't stomach very well with us, since we probably believe that God is a God of life and not a God of death, uh, not a genocidal maniac, but a God of peace. Um, to understand the symbolism of Genesis, the symbolism of the story, we have to reckon with, again, the whole context of genealogy and procreation. We have to remember that since Eve, at least, the begetting of children has been implicated in the transmission of the God complex, the attitude uh, which leads to violence, which leads to killing, symbolized by Cain, but also by Cain's descendants and what leads to the flood, and then there's more violence later on. Uh, that's what generations symbolize for this author. How does God deal with it? He stops the cycle. He stops the cycle of violence, which the Egyptian state represents. Egypt is Cain writ large. By the way, does anyone remember what Cain's occupation was in Genesis 4? Yeah. He was a farmer. And anyone remember what Abel's occupation was? Shepherd. Okay. The Egyptians are farmers. The Hebrews are sheep herders, you know, livestock breeders. There's a profiling at the national level of that Cain versus Abel thing. And, of course, what's the first plague? Blood, right? Blood of Abel, blood of the Nile, right? The, the symbolism of the plagues is a replaying of the Cain and Abel story. Okay, so the whole shtick here all plays into those patterns of human history that God is trying to undo. Um, where we get to the, the climax, the crossing of the sea, which is when the chaos monster, the Pharaoh and his army, are destroyed, you really literally get the language of creation. In fact, you get the language of chaos battle, chaos comp that we talked about last time. So Israel's crossing the sea. When the waters part so that Israel can cross, dry land appears, yabasha in Hebrew. What happened on day three of creation? God parted the waters and the yabasha, the dry land, appeared. This is an, a, a reference back to the creation of the cosmos. So again, back to our, our, our basic theme for tonight, Here's a people being created in history through a political event, political in the sense that it's two kings warring over their labor, uh, but it is being cast in a mythological light, in a, in a primordial light. This is, you know, there, this is maybe the reason why there's no chaos monster in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. It's because it's here. It's been displaced into history. It's not in mythology back there. It's here and now. This is the context. So the story again casts the pharaoh in this role, and this is uh, an irony because if one knows anything about Egyptian culture, in Egyptian culture, the pharaoh, which is an institution more than an individual, is the guarantor, the defender of ma'at, cosmic order. So here's the defender of cosmic order fighting against God, and so he becomes the chaos monster. It's inverting his role. Uh, in fact, the language that the song that the Israelites sing celebrating God's victory of the Pharaoh, uh, about how God throws the horse and rider into the sea. This is the language of how the Pharaohs dealt with their foes. So it's all using the language of, in a sense, Egyptian propaganda, and it's turning it on its head. Right? So we've already seen that, that the Bible's capable of applying this mythological language to political entities. Well, here's, here's the archetype of that, is the crossing of the sea. Just going to show, I'm not going to read all this, it's fine print, but I wanted to, to, to single out a few key 
lines from the Song of the Sea, as it's called. So the Israelites cross the sea and they cheer and sing a song of praise to uh, uh, God for, for doing this for them. And uh, the, the, just a few ones. Verse 8. They say, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in, in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Well, that's Genesis 1 language, more or less. That's creation language there. So they're casting it consciously in terms of a creation act. Who is like you, O Adonai, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? Remember that psalm we read last time where it compares God to the other gods in terms of the wonderful, wonderful things he does, which are all about creation? Again, it's invoking that, st- that archetype of, of God being compared to other gods on the basis of the fact that he alone is the creator. Uh, it speaks of the people whom you redeemed, the people whom you acquired, that's the translation in this version, uh, you protected them as they passed by. When it says, speaks of Israel as the people whom you acquired, the verb kanitha is the same verb as Eve's statement. Kanini, I have acquired or produced or created a man with the Lord. Here, God has acquired or produced or created a people through this act of creation. And then the conclusion of this is, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Again, we talked about creation invokes the language of kingship. So here is a, if you will, a myth, a myth, a story that explains the origin of God's sovereignty, his active, effectual sovereignty over the world of not just the the natural world, but the human world, the opposing forces within the human world, just like the dragons and the serpents from last time. So this is the creation of Israel. And here's just a couple other reflexes of this idea in the Bible. Isaiah 51, who's referring to, who's referring back to creation in order to cajole God to act on Israel's behalf again. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Adonai, awake as in the days of old, the generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the serpent? Right, there's chaos battle. And then notice this one. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? The redeemed is those who've been saved from slavery in Egypt. So this is a reference to Israel, to the Exodus crossing. Notice the two events are aligned. They are at least typologically similar, right? If not one and the same thing. This is my favorite one from the Wisdom of Solomon. He describes again the crossing of the sea. He says, the whole of creation in its nature was fashioned anew in the crossing of the sea. Because nature, the natural elements themselves complied with your commands, O God, so that your children might be kept unharmed. So this is about explicit as you can get. This is an act of recreation. Right? More than just something like creation, it's recreation. God can't, God fails during the first two sequences of generations to get human beings to change on their own. So God can only change history by making history, which is by recreating a people who is not defined by those negative contexts. The Egyptians serve as the foil to that, the archetype of the bad old humanity. Okay, pretty neat stuff. Um, Now we get to the conclusion, the Sinai Covenant. So the creation of Israel reaches its completion at Mount Sinai with the giving of the Torah. Israel's divine election, it's being called by God, chosen by God, highlights its unique role within creation. 
notice how God uh, invites them to covenant with him. He says, now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. So out of all creation, humanly considered. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, creation considered in terms of nature. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So Israel's creation, which is sealed by its entrance into covenant, is cast in the context of creation writ large. The two are one. Here's another reflex of this idea of the the, the alignment of cosmic and national creation. This is Psalm 19. Um, If you're Catholic, we sing a song in church like this at Mass several times. The heavens are, are telling the glory of God. That's how it starts. And all creation is shouting for joy. Here's where it comes from. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. And then comes a really cool image. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. But there's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. What this is saying is that the natural, the universe, the natural order of the universe, and specifically here at the sun and the moon on their regular orderly courses, this is communication. It's not words like we use, but it's communication. In fact, it's revelation. Um, there's a saying, and I don't know where it comes from, that, there, that God made two books. There was the written book, the Torah, then there was the book of creation, so that the natural world as manifesting as revealing as communicating who God is. Okay, so cool image. Then we have this description of how great the sun is. But then notice the topic seems to shift from the sun and the heavens to the Torah. The Torah of God is perfect, relieving, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of, of the Lord are, are, are true and righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. This is very typical of the Psalms. It will shift rather abruptly from what we would think of as one discrete topic to the to another, but the point of this juxtaposition of creation, Torah, is to emphasize that they are fundamentally in alignment. They, they reveal God's glory in different ways, in written form and in non-written form, or in verbal form and voiceless form. This is, in poetic language, what happens at Mount Sinai. The two, the two realities come together. Okay, one more story. We move ahead, and we don't have time to talk about all the wonderful laws of the Torah which illustrate this whole notion of reshaping humanity to live in harmony with all creation and with God. That's another topic entirely. Uh, But let's fast forward now to the book of Numbers. So remember, there's five books in the Pentateuch. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. First part of Exodus is the action story. The second part of Exodus is the laws and building instructions, how to build a tabernacle. And then all of the book of Leviticus, we're still sitting at Mount Sinai, and God is explaining how everything's going to work, how you will be a holy people, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Finally, in the book of Numbers, we start moving. We start moving towards the promised land. And we might know the story, right? God leads them to the promised land. 
Israel decide, Israel bolts. They decide to turn around and go home because there's people there that don't like them. God gets upset. He's ready to destroy them and make a new, to create a new people out of Moses. And Moses says, no way. If you do this, you will impugn yourself. You will no longer be trustworthy. All the nations will hear about it, God. So he says, you're right, Moses. I won't. Thank you for recalling me to myself, but I will punish the, uh, the rebellion. So, they will have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and after that, their descendants can enter the land. So it's sort of a negotiation, one of the most beautiful negotiations in the Bible. Moses really can talk back to God and win. Um, but anyway, this story from the book of Numbers is, as we are approaching the promised land, as the 40 years are coming to an end, and I think, uh, anyway, Numbers 22 to 24, one of the most incredible stories in the Bible, incredible not just because it has because it has beautiful poetry and a neat sort of storyline and a talking animal, but because these three chapters in the book of Numbers are the mirror image of the Garden of Eden story. The problem of humanity that is raised in the Garden of Eden story is not resolved, but ameliorated, lessened, um, uh, is brought to some sort of closure or to some sort of movement towards a solution in what happens in these three chapters in the book of Numbers. So, as it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. These are, this is, this is the conclusion, in a sense, of the story that begins with the Garden of Eden, the immediate conclusion. As I said, creation stories are not isolated events. You can sort of read them as a unit, but you ultimately have to read them in the whole context of the Pentateuch. So, let's give some background. So Israel is coming towards the borders of its promised land, where it will live uh, as this beacon to the nations of what it means to be human. By the way, wh- why do you need them to go to the promised land? Why do you need them to go there? Well, God promised it, but in terms of the logic of story, why do you need? Why does God want Israel to be in Canaan rather than at Mount Sinai? And my explanation, my sort of uh, caveman explanation is that the problem with Mount Sinai is that it's isolated. The other nations of the world can't see what happens there because it's in the middle of a desert. In order for Israel to perform its role as a light to the nations, as a sign of what God wants humanity to be, living in creation in harmony with everything that exists, Israel has to be somewhere visible. So he moves them from one mountain, Mount Sinai, to another mountain, Mount Zion which is the tallest mountain in the world, according to the Bible. If you've ever been there, it looks kind of kind of like a hill. But it's the tallest mountain in the world. Every nation can see it. So that's why he has to move them there. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.